This is a special edition of European Values Perspectives that was recorded during the European Values Summit. The first part of this episode is an interview with Dr. Madoka Fukuda, who attended the summit as one of the speakers. The second part of this episode is a footage from the panel called NATO's New Strategic Concept and the China Challenge, Lessons from the Indo-Pacific, where Dr. Fukuda took part as one of the panelists, together with Dr. Honmin Yao, Professor Tomonori Yoshizaki and Mr. Dimitar Lilkov. Hello, my name is David Toman and I welcome you to the next episode of European Values Perspectives, where we invite experts from security and foreign policy fields. My special guest today is Dr. Madoka Fukuda, who received her PhD and her master's degree in media and governance from Keio University. She specializes in the PRC's diplomacy and the cross-strait relations in the post-war years. Dr. Fukuda, welcome and thank you for being here. Hello, thank you for having me. In June of 2022, NATO adopted a new strategic concept that sets the alliance's priorities for the upcoming years. The concept touches upon NATO's relationship towards the Indo-Pacific and also towards China, which it listed as a security challenge for the very first time. Dr. Fukuda, uh, could you explain what exactly um, are NATO interests and values that the concept uh, refers to? This is mainly written in paragraph 13 and 14 of the concepts. There are three main elements in the concept. The first is security. The concept is concerned that China's military expansion will also impact European security. It also mentions the possibility that hybrid or cyber operations by China could harm the security of NATO allies. And they are also concerned about China's use of supply chains and other means to threaten their economic security. The second, rule-based international order is threatened in this regard, NATO is concerned about Russia and China working together. Although not clearly stated in the strategy, I think that NATO fears that the two authoritarian states will unilaterally change the status quo by force, ignoring the rule-based international order. Third is the importance of democracy as transparency and shared values. In particular, what has been written about China in the concepts is that it is rapidly expanding its capabilities in all aspects, military, political, and economic, while its intentions remain very opaque. There is no need for authoritarian governments 
with no accountability to their citizens to disclose the reality of their in intentions and capabilities. Another problem is the explosion of the vulnerability of democratic societies to cyber attacks and disinformation. Uh, thank you very much. You have already uh, touched upon this in, in your uh, first answer, but uh, um, how would you say is NATO's uh, security uh, threatened by China, given the fact that, uh, let's say, uh, Euro-Atlantic region is quite far away from the Indo-Pacific region? Okay. NATO's primary concern is the collaboration between Russia and China. In particular, after Russia invaded Ukraine, China has not only been uncooperative with economic sanctions against Russia, but has also criticized the G7's sanctions. And Chinese government maintains close relations at a high level with Russian government. Such moves have raised NATO's concerns. Specifically, I want to point out three aspects from the most feasible ones. The first is the exercise of economic statecraft. When China began its Belt and Road Initiative, The economic interdependence between China and European countries deepened rapidly. However, China and the EU have recently exchanged economic sanctions over human rights issues. NATO countries are beginning to adjust their supply chains to avoid overdependence on China. Second, NATO countries are already threatened by cyber attacks and disinformation from China. For example, two years ago, it was reported that the Chinese government was involved in a cyber attack on Microsoft Corporation. In addition, during the outbreak of COVID-19, China's disinformation about the COVID virus in many European countries was consider, considered problematic. Cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns should be important means of hybrid warfare in the preliminary stages of using force. Third, The strategic concepts also indicate China's nuclear and missile capabilities, which are now within range of NATO countries, and that these capabilities have been enhanced. In this stage, the scenario of China using nuclear weapons and missiles against NATO countries is difficult to envision. However, if Russia and China become more closely aligned in the war in Ukraine or, or if NATO becomes involved in conflicts in Asia, 
the threat of such nuclear missiles would be a serious problem for NATO members. Mm -hmm. uh, since we are already speaking about um, uh, nuclear weapons, according to the concept, uh, the PRC is rapidly expanding its nuclear arsenal and is developing increasingly sophisticated delivery systems without increasing transparency or engaging in good faith in arms control or risk uh, reduction. So how seriously should we take China's so-called no first use policy, which is a pledge from 1964, according to which China should, I quote, not to be the first to use nuclear weapons at any time or under any circumstances, end of the quote. Officially, China has never denied its no first use policy, and it continues to insist on checking the use of nuclear weapons about the situation in Ukraine. However, over the past five years, China's nuclear missiles capability and possession system have revealed the reality of its divergence from the its no first use policy. Although China has not disclosed the number of nuclear warheads or ICBMs, its build-up is on track to catch up with or surpass that the United States. Alternatively, information that China is building many underground containment facilities for ICBMs in several inland locations is also alarming as a trend inconsistent with a no-fast-use policy. Thank you. And uh, uh, how do you think uh, the relationship between NATO and Japan is about to evolve? Because recently there have been many discussions about it. Now we know that uh, Japan uh, won't become uh, part of NATO, but uh, it will open a liaison office. So given your background and, uh, of course, uh, your origin, um, yeah, again, how do you think the relationship between NATO and Japan is about to evolve? Okay. The U.S.-Japan alliance and NATO will promote cooperation with the United States as the hub. Japan has consistently responded to NATO's sense of crisis. Prime Minister Kishida participated in the 2022 NATO summit and stated that the security of Europe and the Indo-Pacific are inseparable. Since Russia invades Ukraine, he has also repeatedly expressed that today's Ukraine may be tomorrow's East Asia, alarming about the possibility of a unilateral change of the status quo by China in East Asia. Japan's national security strategy, revised at the end of 2022, contains Japan's strategic position on China, shared with NATO's strategic concepts. Japan's new strategy also states 
that Japan will strengthen its deterrence capabilities with like-minded countries, including those in Europe. We have already talked about um, uh, the strategic partnership between uh, uh, Russia and China. Actually, uh, last year, uh, just before the Winter Olympics uh, in Beijing uh, took place, uh, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and uh, his uh, Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping, they declared that uh, the friendship between uh, Russia, Russian Federation, and the People's Republic of China uh, has no limits. So what can we expect uh, from this uh, uh, no-limits uh, friendship? How dangerous is it? The greatest danger is that China and Russia are taking joint steps to deny the existing international order and build a new one. China has strategic partnerships with many countries, and China has also established strategic partnerships with Japan and many NATO members. However, the strategic partnership between China and Russia is exceptional because it calls for a full-fledged and premier partnership. The current Sino-Russian strategic partnership was renewed in 2019 with a joint statement on the 20th anniversary of the Sino-Russian Treaty of Good Neighborhood and Friendship issued in 2021 to boost this partnership and the Sino-Russian joint statement in 2023 to deepen this partnership further. Many items listed in these joint statements are characterized by their criticism of the existing rule-based international order and their willingness to present a new international order to developing and emerging countries. What do you think are the limits of cooperation between Russia and China? Because they declare that their uh, friendship or partnership has no limits, but at the same time, uh, even though there are many similarities between uh, the leaders of these two countries, there are many similarities between Vladimir Putin and uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the, the nations themselves, uh, uh, Russian and Chinese, are quite uh, different. Also, uh, their history uh, has some problematic aspects that give us uh, uh, reasons uh, to believe that there must be a certain amount of distrust between the uh, Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China. So what, in your opinion, are the limits of the no-limits friendship? The fatal limitation of that uh, strategic partnership, unlike a military alliance, it has no mutual defense or obligations. Therefore, no matter how many promises are made in their strategic cooperation, mutual trust cannot emerge. 
China's diplomatic stance toward Russia after the invasion of Ukraine has been quite cautious, and China never fully supports Russia. In addition, as Russia struggles with its prolonged face in Ukraine, China is trying to strengthen its influence in the Central Asian countries, where both were battling for spheres of influence. Furthermore, as for the new international order they aim for, they only criticize the, the existing international order and do not share any common values, I think. Thank you. Um, so my next question is, which country is a bigger challenge uh, for NATO in uh, long term? Is it uh, China or Russia? Because personally, uh, once I read an article describing uh, their efforts to change uh, our current international rule-based order, and uh, the, the analysis said that uh, Russia is like change of weather, but China is like change of climate. So, uh, yeah, in your opinion, in long term, which country is bigger danger? It is a little bit difficult question, but uh, I think in terms of the balance of power, uh, it is China. Uh, this is because China is expanding its capabilities whether in terms of economic growth, military build-up, or global political influence. Also, while the war in Ukraine has sapped much Russian power, China will be able to uh, accumulate power and increase its global influence. However, unlike the countries of the Indo-Pacific, Russia is still in geographic neighbor to the NATO allies. Whatever changes Russia undergoes through the war in Ukraine, I think its relationship with Russia will be a significant challenge for NATO countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we might say also that um Yeah, with uh, in, in in case of Russia, it's rather a demonstration of uh, military power, and that Russia is uh, focused in uh, uh, mainly on one aspect of uh, how to uh, show or demonstrate its power, while China, we could say, uh, applies more multidisciplinary approach. So it's not just about having a big, strong and modern military, but also spreading its influence in other areas, uh, uh, technologies, uh, economy, and uh, so on. So that's why even, even though China is uh, more far away uh, than uh, than Russia for most of NATO countries it it uh, it poses a bigger threat right mm-hmm. um, and of course uh, so far we have been drawing uh, parallels uh, between China and Russia of course we've been also looking for differences so this brings me to my next question which is 
how likely is uh, the scenario that China would invade Taiwan just like Russia invaded uh, Ukraine? Uh, because uh, especially in the uh, expert community, I noticed that uh, many people are concerned uh, whether uh, China isn't, let's say, uh, learning from the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, to avoid Russian mistakes and uh, yeah, uh, use uh, this knowledge for its uh, future plans regarding uh, Taiwan. So uh, that's the first part of my question. Uh, how likely it is that uh, China would uh, invade uh, Taiwan or would try to uh, escalate uh, the tensions in Taiwan's trade and If it did, that's the second part of my question, what kind of role would NATO play in the conflict, if any, of course? Uh, in my view, China's immediate military invasion of Taiwan is not highly likely. Mm -hmm. However, there is a clear tendency for China to try to build up its capability to invade, invade Taiwan. And it tends to emphasize the possibility of a military invasion. This point should be noted. Based on the assumption that a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan is possible, it is important to prepare deterrence and response capabilities against such an invasion. We also need to consider the possibility of China's assimilating Taiwan, mainly using gray zone measures, without a military invasion like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although the preservation of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is now becoming a common understanding among NATO and like-minded countries like Japan, the question remains as to how to consider the possibility that the status quo could be changed against the will of the Taiwanese people, even if peace is uh, specifically maintained. The question of what role NATO would play in the event of a military conflict in the Taiwan Strait is difficult. This is because it is assumed to be outside of the uh, scope of NATO Article 5. Given the current framework, not all NATO members have diplomatic relations with Taiwan nor do they have domestic roles like the United States-Taiwan Relations Act. This could make it difficult for NATO members to provide weapons support to Ukraine or for the heads of state to rush to Taiwan, as they currently do uh, for Ukraine. Based on an awareness of these issues, it is necessary to have exchanges and dialogues with Taiwan, even in peacetime, and to hold discussion within each country. 
This will also help deter the outbreak of conflict. And uh, this brings me to my next question. So far, uh, we have uh, discussed uh, uh, that uh, China currently poses uh, uh, an increasing threat uh, to NATO's uh, interests, uh, security and values, not just in the region of the Indo-Pacific, but uh, globally. Uh, we have discussed that there are Uh, more and more uh, differences and uh, it's uh, the the tensions the tensions are rising so uh, my question is uh, do you see any potential for deeper and mutually trustworthy cooperation between NATO and China anytime soon Uh, originally, China is critical of military alliances like NATO or the US-Japan alliance. So, uh, building trustworthy cooperation between NATO and China should not be easy. However, each NATO member can try to build a trustworthy relationship with China. Since the end of the last year, China has been eager to rebuild economic relations with European and Asian countries and actively engaged in summit diplomacy with these countries. We should seize this opportunity and hold beneficial dialogues with China. As we have discussed, There are clear differences between China and NATO and like-minded countries in their position on the existing rule-based international order. Still, continuing dialogue with China and our engagement policy is important. Thank you very much for this valuable insight. Uh, the reason I asked is that uh, when I was reading uh, through the concept myself, uh, there is a part uh, that says, uh, I quote, uh, we remain open to constructive engagement with the PRC, including to build uh, reciprocal transparency with a view to safeguarding the alliance's security interests. We will work together responsibly as allies to address the systemic challenges posed by the PRC to Euro-Atlantic security and ensure NATO's enduring ability to guarantee the defense and security of allies. We will boost our shared awareness, enhance our resilience and preparedness, and protect against the PRC's coercive tactics and efforts to divide the alliance. We will stand up for our shared values and the rules-based international order, including freedom of uh, navigation, and then uh, the text uh, continues. And I think uh, this uh, uh, completes very well uh, your response, uh, uh, Dr. Fukuda. So this brings us uh, to the end of our today's discussion. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Fukuda, for being here with me and with our listeners and for sharing your perspective on uh, today's topic. I wish you a very good day. Thank you. Have a good day. 
I would also like to thank our listeners for staying with us uh, until the end of this very interesting discussion. And I wish you as well a very good rest of the day. So, hello and welcome to the last panel uh, and last session of today. <laughs> the audience who is right now here is apparently the most resilient one, and thank you very much for that. Uh, I would like to uh, start by introducing Charles Burton, the non-resident senior fellow of European Values Center based in Canada, who will have a keynote speech in the, begin in the beginning, and then he will introduce to you the rest of the panel and the panelists. We are going to uh, discuss during this last session the new NATO's strategic concept and a China challenge, lessons from the Indo-Pacific. Just a small remark from us as organizers. The following panel has been supported by the NATO Public Diplomacy Division. And now let me give the word to Charles. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I'd like to talk about uh, China's hybrid warfare strategy uh, as it relates to information exploitation. And, you know, the PRC regime messaging is that China is an inherently peaceful and beneficent power. The growth of Chinese uh, power is inexorable, but China is vengeful and dangerous if provoked. Um, moreover, America is the past, China is the future, so nations should get on the right track. If you can't beat them, join them, seems to be the, the line that's taken by countries that... Uh, start to move over into China. So this kind of messaging orchestra is intended to condition China uh, citizens of democratic nations uh, into believing that the rewards of complying with China's political agenda, including over Taiwan and over military expansion in the East and South China Sea, that those rewards are great. Resistance is futile. And even the slightest opposition to China's political agenda would have disastrous consequences for their national economies. So, you know, don't invite any Taiwanese officials to your reception. Uh, the government of China urges foreign governments to adopt a policy of appeasement to PRC regime aggression through a tactical discourse of um, setting aside differences and seeking common ground. Chiu Tong Tsung Yi... Basically, what this means is showing friendship to China by not criticizing any of China's domestic and foreign policies because raising human rights, uh, Chinese espionage, Chinese enabling of autocratic regimes, um, etc., etc., is unfriendly to China and racist to all people of ethnic Chinese origin, the Han Chinese. The Chinese state makes explicit that the Chinese regime companies you know, because China is an integrated party state industrial commercial regime, that those companies prefer not to engage in business with foreign companies that um, are, uh, come from unfriendly nations. So, um, you know, it's better for nations to uh, be friendly to China and China will reward expressions of friendship with the PRC by expanding market share in the massive Chinese market for those countries and, you know, not buying the airplanes from countries that have done something that China didn't like, or submarines or many other things, canola seeds. So influential members of our political and business elites effectively curry favor with China's integrated party state 
industrial commercial regime by speaking out on behalf of China and by lobbying their governments to implement policy towards China that favors PRC regime interests. These people are acting out of monetary or other self-interests as agents of a power with hostile intentions towards us. I mean, you just have to call a spade a spade in this regard. The PRC regime is able to strategically exploit vulnerabilities in our open societies to further progress to the PRC's ultimate agenda of achieving what um, uh, Party General Secretary Xi Jinping refers to as the community of the common destiny of mankind or humankind. In Chinese, it doesn't have a section. There's no gender in the ta. Uh, this is really, this community of the common destiny of humankind is just a code for his geostrategic plan for China to displace the United States as the global superpower hegemon. <coughs> but There are also vulnerabilities in the PRC regime that can be leveraged to try and incentivize China to become more compliant with the norms of diplomacy and trade and thereby mitigate the prospect of a disastrous war between China and the West and the years ahead. So, you know, we are working, uh, some agencies in the Canadian government, are working towards identifying vulnerabilities in the PRC regime and seeing if we can counter Chinese disinformation in the West by, by um, giving Chinese people in China uh, options, political alternative options in times ahead due to developments in technology. Uh, this um, is evidently going to be possible. So if you look at where these vulnerabilities are, of course, the one that we are most familiar with is the hypocrisy of PRC constitutional hollow guarantees of citizens' rights versus lack of due process of law to protect from arbitrary predatory behavior by party officials and their cronies, very comprehensive censorship of information and monitoring of digital communications and just arbitrary political repression. You look at Article 35, Chinese state constitution, and they guarantee a lot of freedoms, none of which are available. And the government opposes constitutionalism, as they put it, which is that a constitution should have any impact on what a government does. The second uh, vulnerability is the reality of very high rates of corruption by very wealthy uh, Chinese communist elites and lack of accountability for extravagant behavior by the families of those elites and, uh, you know, things like the hypocrisy of their expensive education in American and European institutions. And this, uh, for a lot of people, betrays the egalitarian ideals of the 1949 revolution, which brought the Chinese Communist Party to power. A third one is that women are excluded from significant political roles including the all-male Politburo, the lack of sanction for perpetuators of sexual harassment of women, and the lack of protection for gendered minorities. China has suppressed the, the spread of the Me Too movement. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, urging action against pervasive uh, sexual harassment of women in the workplace by male communist officials and in universities. But the young women public protesters in the Me Too movement in China have been arrested and incarcerated on charges of picking quarrels and provoking uh, trouble. So, you know, in general, the regime's disregard for the safety of young Chinese women 
and toleration of sexual assault by powerful men in authority is just one illustration of the ever-widening gap between the institutional patriarchal values of the Chinese Communist Party under uh, Xi Jinping and the modern social values prevailing in China today, albeit submerged from view by us by strong comprehensive official censorship. So let me uh, just conclude by saying that the implementation of Xi Jinping's international doctrine of the community of the common destiny of mankind, engendering geopolitical tensions with democratic nations that are causing China to be excluded from high-tech modern development and which could lead to a devastating war with the U.S., is by itself a vulnerability in the, re- in the regime. I mean, as was pointed out earlier, you know, if you've got a one-child policy and have done sex-selective um, uh, birth, um, my, my wife's uh, nephews are all nephews and no single niece. She has five of them. Um, and uh, in general, Xi Jinping's general imposition of ideological orthodoxy and his demand that Xi Jinping thought should be placed into the head, the heart, and the soul of all Chinese people. Ru Nao, Ru Xin, Ru Hun, really expresses the vulnerability that the PRC's regime's ideology simply cannot compete in a free marketplace of ideals. And that this kind of um, increasing repression, as uh, Dr. Lau pointed out in his presentation, is really causing a problem in China, um, particularly for people who have any foreign connections. It's become harder and harder for them to uh, function in society because of suspicion. Moreover, nobody except Xi Jinping himself appears to privately and genuinely support his removal of the political office terms to his power. Nobody inside the party or outside the party thinks that Mr. Xi is so exceptional that he should never um, uh, leave his uh, three posts as party head, military head, and um, the lesser post of head of state. China deserves a government that upholds universal citizens' rights that are the entitlement of all people everywhere, including in the People's Republic of China. So let me leave it there and let's move to the next item on the agenda. Thank you. Okay. Okay, um, I guess that's me. I'll be the second. <laughs> yeah, according to the agenda. Okay, uh, do you want me to say anything about the panel? Nah, no, I, I think I can just, you know, take over from here. Uh, I have been... Um, Fine. I've been, I've been, I've been I'll, I'll sit over there. <laughs> Go ahead. Now, I think you, 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 you have already done a very good job to give us the context, but I guess... This would bring us to um, the, the panel, as you mentioned, original, uh, I was asked to talk about NATO's new strategy and China challenge. So you lay, lay out the context in a vividly. Yes, that's, that's, the, that's what I was going to say. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the purpose. So um, give people a little bit of background about this uh, NATO new challenge, given that uh, you know, I'm the first speaker. I think last year, Jim, 2022nd NATO revised its strategic concept. Uh, in uh, Madrid Summit. And uh, in this document, it clearly specified that uh, China is new systematic challenge. The previous such document was released in 2010. And one thing we all know for sure is in terms of studying strategy is to recognize the constant change of the dynamic within a strategic environment. 10 years ago, Europe was busy 
dealing with financial crisis, fighting against terrorism, and Russia at that point of time was still complaining about China's intellectual property theft upon its defense technology. However, the current day Europe faces uh, different threats, including Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine, dealing with supply chain security, and in addition, Russia seems to have become a vassal state under China's growing global influence. Now, in retrospect, NATO was founded in 1949 during the Cold War context to safeguard freedom and security. While it would be possible, uh, impossible to completely separate Europe from the Indo-Pacific region, as we have learned in uh, you know, previous many, so many panels, a new strategic thinking is required to make NATO continuously relevant. And certainly, as uh, Charles laid out clearly, China's increasing influence is becoming unignorable, including its influence in global infrastructure, supply chain, and known building. So this 2022 NATO strategic concept stated, as I quote, the People's Republic of China stated ambitions and coercive policies challenges our interest, security, and value, end quote. So I want to share uh, what I see, how these three different perspectives, uh, you know, China has been presenting challenges to Europe. First, for Europeans' interest, I think China's provocative military behaviors in East China Sea, including South China Sea, Taiwan's trade present a credible threat, not only to the region, but also to the European interest. If a conflict occurs in the region, it will certainly block the major uh, you know, sea line of communication in East Asia and also endanger not only global supply chain, but also European economic interest. So secondly, regarding to European security, China is not yet a direct military threat like Russia to Europe, as we also learned this morning. But without China's direct, the continuous support, Russia is questionable regarding its military capacity. And China's weaponizing of its market is challenging the norm of the depoliticized economic activity after World War II. And the authoritarian nature of the Chinese Communist Party is undermining European economic security. Thirdly, for European value, the Chinese Communist Party's abuse power, political power in China, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, and overseas, repeatedly contradict the dental value of, as I quote, democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law, as well as to the peace resolution of disputes, end quote. While Taiwan, Korea, and Japan present the feasibility of democracy in Asia political culture, Chinese Communist Party is creating narratives 
of effective authoritarian political system and establishing an alternative worldview to justify its self-proclaimed unique political existence. Russo-Ukrainian war told us that once deterrence failed, the war occurred in any region and the war would suffer expensive social and economic costs. Hence, I think 2022nd NATO Strategic Council emphasized the three pillars of its future strategy design and that have been mentioned clearly in the document. The first one is deterrence and defense. Second one is crisis prevention and management. And third one is cooperative security. So I think before NATO will be able to reimagine or rethink its area of responsibility to Asia, there are some practical steps or suggestions that NATO could do to mitigate any unthinkable risk potentially incurred by China's rise. So I think this could do uh, could include enlarging intelligence cooperation with regional partners to enhance deterrence, as we uh, mentioned in the first point, and or studying the political and economic impact of the material coming from and to the Indo-Pacific region through sea line of communication during a conflict, as I mentioned in the second point, like you know, crisis management, and then uh, finally, maybe even deepen exchange and policy coordination with the regional partners to collective, uh, collect good intelligence for basic decision making and even potentially synchronizing their future actions. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, to conclude, I think uh, it may be too early to suggest any future naturalizations of the Indo-Pacific to deter China, but certainly... I think there are practical things that NATO could do without provoking. I'll uh, end my uh, beginning, you know, starting statement here. And back to you, Charles. So this speaker speaks with great authority. It's (laughs) Dr. Hongmin Yao, who is the director of the Graduate Institute of International Security, Associate Professor of Strategic and International Affairs at the National Defense University in Taiwan. So... If you liked what he heard, he also speaks with great authority. On this uh, no, not really. Yeah. So yeah. the next speaker is uh, Dr. Uh, Tomonoro Yoshika- Yoshi- Yoshizaki. Uh, how am I doing? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> he is a professor at the Tokyo University of Foreign Studies, and uh, he will also be talking about NATO's new strategic concept and the China challenge. Thank you very much, and I'm so honored to be given this chance to speak for you on NATO. And uh, let me start with my personal experience on NATO. Seven years back, May 2016, Japan Ministry of Defense welcomed NATO Music uh, Committee Chair in Tokyo. And at the same time, uh, at the time, I worked for National Institute of Defense Studies, the counterpart to the uh, Taiwanese National Defense University, and also partner of the NATO Defense College in Rome. So, and I was a director of policy simulation, thinking about the unthinkable. I had the honor to have a dinner with the 
a chair of the military committee of NATO for the first time in my life, and I'm so excited. We really enjoy tempura sushi dinner in Tokyo, <laughs> and we talked about the future of the Asian Pacific or in the Pacific security challenges. Then, after that, he made a visit to Korea, the first ever NATO chair of the military committee visit South Korea. That may be a kind of trigger and one step forward for the AP4, the Asian Pacific, Japan, uh, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand partnership. This is kind of the buzzword now, but the 70 years back, the chair made a visit to South Korea. His name is Czech Army General Petro Pavel. I was so excited to share this personal experience with you, but now it is a reality. So NATO Media Committee Chair made a visit to Tokyo and South Korea and have a, a dialogue about the thinking about the thinkable or the harbor future partnerships. Now it is a reality. I'm so honored to make a comment from that one. And let me limit myself the three distinct concepts in my mind based upon the lesson learned so far on Ukraine and on an impact on the deterrence, extended deterrence posture in the Indo-Pacific theater. Okay, what is three R's? Number one is resistance. Resistance is number one. <coughs> Ukraine people morale, spiritual kind of strengths is the sources of the the power, everybody knows that. That means even with the black swan situations, surprise attack by the Russia, but Ukraine people are making resistance. Morale matters. Number two is resilience. This is the key word repeated and reiterated in this very important forum. Now, it is thinking about resilience of the Ukraine, not only limited to Ukraine, but other partners, including possibly Taiwan. Resilience, number one, NATO described as leadership resilience. We will never forget about what happened in August uh, 2020 after the Tokyo Olympic Games, then Afghanistan, Chapter 21, the capital of the Afghanistan, Kabul, was well, taken over by Taliban. What happened was leadership was gone, and resilience, resilience was away. That means top leadership and morale supported by people is a key. Now we witness the Ukraine situations, and this is a resilience key. But not only limited to that, supply chain, water, sanitation, electricities, and the safety of the nuclear power plant, route, evacuation, refugees, quite a lot of challenges. These many layers of challenges, resilience is a key word. And I'm so happy to share with you that the NATO EU agreed on the resistance support to Ukraine, and not only limited to that, members 
and also the continental white, this kind of resilient support is critical. Not only limited to the European theater, but also Japan or like-minded partner will make a commitment of the economic sanctions vis-a-vis uh, -vis targeted countries and also G7 Hiroshima summit declare that we have the common destiny and also interest of the denuclearization as the ultimate purposes and also called for a transparency in case of nuclear issues. Russia and possibly Belarus may have the growing interest about the nuclear escalations. That is simply wrong. Let me highlight the third one, third R. This is reassurance. Reassurance for allies in the region. Reassurance to European members. And also, in the case of the Indo-Pacific, hub and spoke led by U.S. is still the reality. Hub and spoke system was formed during the Korean War. But we say Korean War, Korean War may be a kind of misleading. During the Korean War period, 1950-53, Taiwan Strait faced a serious crisis of escalations. Then, 7-3 of the U.S. have a kind of neutralization of the Taiwan Strait right after the uh, June 25th, 1950s surprise attack by North Korea down south. That means North Korean aggressive behavior down south, down south may be connected to the neutralization operation by U.S. The, uh, naval forces mm -hmm. right after this. So this kind of connectivity in our theater may have a very important the escort, the, the extended deterrence importance for European theater because U.S. commitment is a key. So let me conclude. Resistance of the people and the resilience of the support by like-minded partners and reassurance of the U.S., which is not in the visible manner of the continental politics, but treaty-based, the uh, commitment of extended deter deterrence is still the key. So never forget about that reality. So these three are maybe a kind of foundation for better management of Japan, NATO, Asian Pacific Four Partnership. I will stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, next up, we have uh, Madoko Fukuda, who is a professor of global politics in the Faculty of Law at Hosei University in Japan. Thank you for inviting me here today. As a Japanese scholar studying uh, cross-strait relations across the Taiwan Strait, I will share my view on the possibility and challenges of NATO's new strategic concepts on the situation of East Asia, especially in the Taiwan Strait. First, I will summarize NATO's crisis awareness against China's rise in the new strategic concept. Then, I will introduce how, Japanese, how Japan tries to cooperate with NATO's concepts and deter China's aggression in the Indo-Pacific region 
Finally, I will discuss the challenge for Japan and NATO to contribute to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait based on such cooperation. First, NATO's crisis awareness against recent China's rise and aggression is Uh, common to the sense of crisis that Japan has had toward China for a long time, uh, as the professor uh, pointed, uh, especially since 2010. Uh, uh, um, while its strategic intentions remain unclear, China is expanding its military, political, economic, and other capabilities and using them to expand its global influence. And cyber attacks, disinformation, and economic statecraft originating in China are alarming. NATO's sense of crisis about China has gradually strengthened over the past decade and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has heightened warnings about strengthening ties between Russia and China. Second, Japan has consistently responded to NATO's sense of crisis. Prime Minister Kishida participated in the 2022 NATO summit and stated that the security of Europe and the Indo-Pacific are inseparable. Since Russia invades Ukraine, uh, Prime Minister Kishida has also repeatedly expressed that today's Ukraine may be tomorrow's East Asia. Alarming about the possibility of unilateral change of the status quo by China in East Asia. For example, East China Sea, uh, South China Sea, and the Taiwan Strait. Japan's national security strategy, devised at the end of 2022, contains Japan's strategic position on China, shared with NATO's strategic concepts. Japan's new strategy also states that Japan will strengthen its deterrence capabilities with like-minded countries, including uh, those in Europe. Uh, finally, when considering the nexus between Ukraine and East Asia, the most significant concern is the possibility of a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan. Japan and NATO members have repeatedly affirmed the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait over the past few years. However, there is no clear shared understanding of what Japan and NATO should do to achieve this goal. Furthermore, There has been little discussion about how a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would occur and how the U.S.-Japan alliance, the Quad countries or NATO members would respond to such an invasion. With the start of Xi Jinping's third term and the end of his zero-COVID policy, 
China is now calling on these countries to strengthen economic ties again and launch a peace offensive. While continuing dialogue with China, Japan and NATO members should quietly continue further discussion on deterrence and response to the possible military conflict in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, I will stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, last, certainly not least, uh, Dimitar Lilkov, a senior research officer at the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies. Thank you, Charles. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Dobry den. Uh, it's a pleasure and privilege to be here. The Martin Center is uh, partnering in, with the European Values for this event, so I was specifically honored in the morning when we're all part of this interesting moment with uh, the Czech president, the Taiwanese foreign minister. Uh, now, usually when uh, token think tankers from Brussels speak in these conferences, usually they speak a lot about the European Union, uh, over-exaggerating the role of the European uh, Union with a very uh, Europeanized, Eurocentric world, world view. I'm, I'm also going to talk about the EU, of course, but maybe a bit, more, a bit more humble about our sense in the world and specifically about the EU's role in the Indo-Pacific. Indo about the strategic concept... Um, the updated version of, the, of NATO's new documents from 2022 was specifically a new point of departure. Uh, as you all know, for the first time, China was explicitly mentioned with a specifically different language this time. Uh, and this was a clear departure from previous NATO documents. The fact that uh, the document speaks so overtly about China going against the rule-based international order, sharing concerns about its non-transparent increase of its nuclear capacities, aggressive budgets for, for its uh, military, as well as these info campaigns, means that we are in a, new, in a new situation. This is specifically interesting and specifically uh, a huge change for the EU NATO member states. Compare the NATO strategy concept with the EU's 21 Indo-Pacific strategy. The language is completely different extremely more benign and then the European External Action Service, uh, Action Service pushed for a direction, we talk about China for a direction on, of compromise and how we can, we can do better with, with China. So clearly the NATO strategic concept is a clear departure point and a huge change for the EU member states as well. Now the crux of the matter is how the EU and NATO members can deal, uh, can deal with a country like, like China a unique actor in international relations. How do you deal with a country uh, which has an extremely aggressive posture in the, in the Indo-Pacific, a country which has increased its military budgets and has made numerous commitments about increasing its, its nuclear arsenal? How do you deal with a country like China which still practices active genocide within its borders? Um, of course, I'm referring to Xinjiang and atrocities happening to the Uyghur Muslims and other, other uh, minorities there. We're reading reports about education camps, about sexual exploitation, even sterilization. I think these points should be mentioned and reiterated in every event when we talk about China. Finally, how do you deal with, uh, with an international actor which doesn't abide by international norms, international rules? I was really happy that... Um, the Taiwanese Foreign Minister Joseph Wood this morning reminded us about Hong Kong. We kind of forgotten about Hong Kong. For two years now, uh, the United Kingdom has been protesting that China has unilaterally breached the joint declaration uh, on Hong Kong from 84. 
clearly the commitments made, ratified with the UN, are not being abided by, by China. So how do we deal with, the, with, this, with this actor? Now, as I spend a lot of time in Brussels, the discussion right now, when we talk about the EU, about NATO, about China, the discussion seems to be, the, the question seems to be only one. How will the EU respond if there's a blockade or an invasion in, in Taiwan? I think that this question is fundamentally wrong. The question we should be asking is what should the EU do does so that this question, so this crisis never appears in the first place? What do we do so that th this crisis doesn't happen? And I think that the EU should act from a position of strength and unity. The EU is not very accustomed to act from a position of strength, but I think that we should readapt our strategic culture in the next couple of years. First of all, uh, the defense budgets. The 2% from GDP shouldn't be the aspiring goal. It should be the minimum, I think, in the decade ahead, uh, giving of the dynamics in, on the international, international sphere, even though this is, a, this is a challenge, of course. We should think, the EU should think proactively about its commitments and its partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region, of course, as was mentioned by the speakers, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, Singapore. Um, of course, we should also be aware of the narratives and the discussions and the level of discourse within our own member states. And we, we seem to be underestimating this. Uh, the hybrid warfare and the challenges mentioned by, by Charles, of course. But Russia clearly wrote the rule book on disinformation. China is copying it from it, adapting it, getting even better. So we should put a lot more effort so we can handle the discourses happening within our borders. On Taiwan, I think uh, the EU should strengthen its engagement, its, its specific economic and trade involvement with, uh, with Taiwan. Czechia is an amazing country trying to, to push forward the, the EU consensus on the, on the top topic. And finally, we should address the, the, the issue of China and Taiwan, specifically on, on Taiwan, from a very united perspective. Um, the Americans have pursued the successful strategy of strategic ambiguity. We should not allow the EU to have an ambiguous lack of strategy when we talk about Taiwan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, we have not that long a time left, but let me, uh, before we open it up to the floor for questions, let me ask a provocative question based on what I've heard from you. Um, now, I think we heard from Professor uh, Yao that China does not present a direct military threat to Europe. But then we hear from, I think, Professor Madoka that today's Ukraine could be tomorrow's East Asia. But we do have a, a situation where, you know, countries are not fulfilling their NATO funding commitments, uh, 2%. Uh, so NATO's resources are limited but um, Japan, uh, we heard earlier today, uh, will not be contributing militarily to uh, Ukraine to challenge Russia, even though we've heard that Japan will be doubling its defense budget uh, in the next five years. So, you know, what is the expectation of Japan if Japan is not prepared to contribute to uh, the resolution of the Russian challenge in Europe but does expect uh, NATO to open an office in Japan and to, and uh, presumably uh, Japan will contribute militarily to any action involving Taiwan. Um, you know, don't you see that there might be some uh, 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 questions about uh, Japan's prevailing upon us to support 
the Indo-Pacific when uh, NATO has the word North Atlantic in it. Uh, maybe we could just go around uh, with Professor uh, Fukuda first and then oh. Professor Tamori and complete with, uh, with you. <laughs> yep. Okay, so, um, so uh, I think um, the NATO has uh, con- contributed to East, Aj- East Asia and uh, Japan's contribute to Ukraine is uh, um, uh, in in some part uh, just opposite. But uh, as you know, uh, Japan uh, itself has uh, the very uh, unique background of its uh, own defense policy. So um, so for Ukraine, uh, Japan uh, only can contribute. Um, to economically, and now, um, in my understanding, uh, Japanese government is planning to uh, contribute more about the rebuilding uh, the, the uh, Ukraine uh, society uh, after the war. Uh, so, um, so this is the Japanese uh, limitation of its. Uh, own defense um, policy and the uh, including the constitution um, and the uh, 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 difference of the um, the uh, geographic uh, position uh, from uh, NATO countries and for ja- for Taiwan uh, uh, the Japanese uh, possible contribute con- con- <laughs> contribute is a little bit uh, uh, different um, because um, the Taiwan and Japan is geographically very, very close and the um, uh, how can I say? Uh, now uh, in Japan uh, we have another <laughs> uh, 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 we we have uh, um, <laughs> um, we have a discussion of the uh, uh, Taiwan contingency is Jap- Japanese uh, Japan's contingency. It means um, uh, uh, it does not uh, directly means uh, that uh, Japan. Japanese self-defense force directly um, rush to help uh, uh, Taiwanese uh, uh, military in the case of uh, contingency. But um, now a Japanese society uh, has a uh, has a serious uh, sense of crisis that if China invade. Um, Taiwan militarily, um, Japan uh, will uh, will be attacked by um, uh, People's Liberation Army, mm. uh, especially in the uh, south uh, uh, southwest islands. Um, in, in, in Japanese territory. Um, and uh, another uh, point of discussion is the uh, 
Taiwan's Taiwan contingency's position in the、uh, U.S.-Japan alliance.、Um, um, so,、uh, in the context of the Um, the uh, collective uh, self-defense.、Uh, now, Japanese uh, government and uh, Japanese um, um, society um,、uh, have already started the discussion how to connect. Uh, the possible Taiwanese contingency uh, and um, Japanese uh, right of uh, collective self-defense. I mean, I, I certainly hear you on that, I, and I, I think,、uh, as was pointed out this morning,、uh, Japan could also be concerned about、uh, the Korean Peninsula having a similar、yes. situation, and you're worried about. As you said, the People's Liberation Army、uh, visiting、uh, Japan. But、uh, if I could point out,、um, you know,、uh, Chechnya is quite close to Ukraine and is also worried about Russian invasion. And Chechnya is quite far from Taiwan. So, uh, 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 but but your expectation is still that the Europeans will help out in Indo-Pacific. But but you're not prepared to make a military、um, contribution、uh, here. Anyway,、uh, Professor Tamari. Okay. Thank you very much, and、uh, I'd like to follow up the Madoka-san said and、uh, Taiwan contingency things. And、uh, my previous position was a director of policy simulation, thinking about、uh, thinkable. And、uh, I did seven years now, including that country, that country. We didn't name any specific name, but you can imagine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and、uh, number one issue is Article Five of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. And、uh, every time we have the、um, the American president visiting、uh, Japan or having an official、uh, meeting, then ask whether or not Article Five will be implemented and applicable to Senkaku. Senkaku is a part of the Okinawa, very close to Taiwan mainland, and、uh, we said firm yes. All the administration had affirmed that Article Five sent to the Senkaku, which is very close to the Taiwan. Plus, thinking about unthinkable, you, the Madoka-san, you are right.、Uh, we admit that、uh, the safety and security of this area is、uh, inseparable to the Taiwan situations. So we haven't had any. A former commitment for that one, but apparently、uh, we do remember what happened in the last summer, encircling the Taiwan mainland by PLA,、um, the,、uh, miss- the missiles and the so-called, the so-called testing, and、uh, we had a several shot、uh, within our EEZ by PLA. So this is a signal. And also, we got the kind of、um, support from the public that we have to defend our own territory. Plus, connectivity matters, and the connectivity to Taiwan, plus the European partners, because the Taiwan crisis is connected to the South China Sea 
and sea lines communication, we depend a lot in those situations. So in that sense, we have to think about the unthinkable. Let me add one thing, and I will stop that. So uh, Japanese government agreed on the five-year defense plan, and in that period, last December, the, our government, for the first time in history, admitted that the simulations has been done uh, in order to uh, prove that our budget or our preparation is not enough. So we have to build up. Then uh, we called so-called intra-war deterrence definitely needed in order to deal with the, our situation. Because we have to think about North Korea, Russia, and China at the same time. So in that sense, we're so busy and uh, we have no illusion whatsoever. We have no time to waste. That means the year of maximum danger is somewhere around 2025, 6, 7. And that, that means we have to do, fix it. And we need the budget and preparedness. I will stop here. Oh, thank you. I, I, I'm interested in your 2025 date, which is uh, pretty soon. Um, very, yeah, very, very brief point. Uh, I personally understand and respect the sovereign decision of, of Japan and its involvement in the, in the war in Ukraine. Of course, this stems from a specific culture of uh, non-aggression and pacifism from the last 70 years. But if Japan does not want to contribute military means to the war in Ukraine, I think Japan should be understanding and respectful of the fact that there will be opposition in the EU to an office in, in a NATO office in Tokyo, and there will be disagreement in, in the EU when it comes to active involvement and military involvement in, in the region. Okay. Okay. Uh, yep. Thank you, Charles. On I think this is uh, the essence of the uh, the dialogue. Uh, to put it in simple way, that uh, Europe is more concerned of the Russia, mm -hmm. and then uh, how do we convince European to uh, you know uh, contribute to deter China when you know the actual operation happened? And in Asia, uh, countries are more concerned about China. And then when uh, certainly we want, you know, um, partners from outside the region and to contribute, how that be questionable, as you pointed out clearly, uh, so what you have been doing, you know, in terms of contributing to um, deter or stabilize the region, you know, uh, in this Russo-Ukrainian conflict. I guess, you know, uh, from Taiwan, is always a different perspective. We know, ideally, Europe want to focus on European Christian first. Asia want to focus on Asia Christian first. But in practicality, can you actually separate them? I think this is the fundamental uh, different perspective. Hence, um, I think our ministers you know, said clearly, even Russo-Ukrainian war conflict happened in Europe, but Taiwan understand there's no way, and I was mentioned in my you know, you know, beginning statement, there's no way to you know, separate these two different regions in the current still interconnected world. So the war occurred in Ukraine, but still affect what's happening in Asia. So Taiwan contribute uh, material, whatever we can do, because we understand it's very important. So I guess... Um, to answer your question, maybe in, we, we, I think it, this is the secret dialogue to make people uh, see it clearly. Can we actually separate all these two different regions and um, just take, uh, 
you know the conversation about uh, the China's rise in the Indo Pacific. When the war, if it occur, I don't think it's just simply between Taiwan and China because Taiwan is not provoking. Uh, it would do, do anyway without the rep provoking China. Hence, uh, when my Japanese friends they are talking, I think they are thinking about the conflict would be more like between. China, U.S. and China thinking about where are all these U.S. military. So Japan would be forced to get involved, and while China was, you know, doing all this calculation, maybe North Korea would do something to stabilize the uh, American military in South Korea. So the conflict would, you know, proliferate from Taiwan's trade all the way to Japan, to Korea, and. While the conflict continue, the scene of the communication have been obstructed. And uh, back to what I said earlier, this is an important trade route, you know, for Japan, Korea, Philippines, and even for China. And you know, all this supply chain security is going to, uh, you know, pressure up and impacting uh, the region beyond this. So I guess this is probably you know a different kind of starting point in terms of we can engage in this uh, conversation, and certainly I, I think this is something we need to recognize, and hence um, our European friend talking about respect the sovereign decision, and I guess um, that's what I say in my speech. I say uh, Europe haven't perceived. China as a direct military threat yet I was reflecting the mentality conversation nowadays at this point of time I think there was a survey conducted by the European uh, Council of the Foreign Relations showing that uh, in general majority of the European country they say want to stay neutral <laughs> if there's a conflict happen in Indo-Pacific and that's I was saying that reflecting the mentality but that go back to what I'm saying you know um to make a good decision, you need to have a good understanding. So I'm quite, um, you know, supporting NATO of the office in Japan to understand and collect information locally because by doing that and by, you know, study the regional situation, you will be able to improve your understanding and to facilitate a better decision. So I hope answer uh, that part of the question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. We have five minutes for questions from the floor. I think there's a question over there, that gentleman right behind you. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask one. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, I mean, just to the ECFR poll. Could, uh, could you identify yourself? Ulrich Speck, a German analyst with NZZ now. Um, the ECFR poll, the question was whether you would join the U.S. Uh, in a war against China. It yeah. was not, the question was not, would you That's support okay. yeah. um, uh, Taiwan? Yeah. And the question was not with uh, sanctions. So, so this is, I think it would, I would take it yeah. with caution, this poll. Mm. And my question is, um, Japan is uh, one of the heavyweights in the region, and it has positioned itself very clearly um, right now. And how about India? And how about um, your prime minister went to India recently, there are efforts to bring India closer into, I wouldn't say coalition, but in a partnership. Um, the Quad obviously is, is an important uh, organization now. Uh, where do you see um, India in that, and how is the situation with India evolving? Thank you. 
Okay, maybe we can gather another question. Uh, uh, Kyoko? Uh, ki yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jules. Uh, I'm Kyoko from the Japan Institute of International Affairs, also the Minister. Uh, uh, McDonald Rory Institute in Canada. I, my question goes to uh, Professor Yoshizaki-san. And uh, uh, you mentioned about the NATO uh, office in Tokyo. And I understand that, um, as you all mentioned, NATO is ramping up its effort um, in the Indo-Pacific. And as it has just launched its um, new uh, cooperation initiative um, called Future, Futures in the Indo-Pacific, and experts from Bel uh, Belgium, Australia, and uh, o Belgium, Australia, France, and Japan in uh, uh, January, the end of January 2023 mm -hmm. this year. And uh, as you know, uh, the, they are now thinking about the the, the uh, the la they're launching the Tokyo uh, liaison, liaison office uh, sometimes next year. And at the same time, Japan, Japanese government is uh, ramping up its effort uh, in terms of strategic communication with the, with the uh, NATO uh, members and uh, NATO, NATO partners. So how do you see or how do you assess or how do you expect uh, Japanese government how we can uh, you know, build up its uh, own uh, strategic communication and vice versa? Thanks. Dr. Yao. You want to go one deeper? Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, I think, the, okay, uh, from France Bay Foundation. The, um, I believe the, uh, the issue about the NATO's and Taiwan, the first thing that uh, what Taiwan would like to ask is that uh, how uh, those NATO members, their own individual state, uh, the definition about Taiwan status, that will affect their decisions, because that will be the critical. Uh, whether they uh, would NATO want to help Taiwan or not, uh, is a Taiwan a state or not? Uh, by some men, uh, by the NATO member state, would NATO reach the uh, decision regarding the uh, the status of Taiwan? Because that would affect uh, the kind of the constraint that you have or the the kind of capability you can provide uh, should on the issue of Taiwan. So that I think that probably will be the first question, and also the question that Taiwan would like to ask, uh, especially the G7, where they, we found out the the, the one month statement. Uh, the peaceful established uh, uh, status of territories. That itself is uh, significant, but we do not know whether that will apply and uh, how that's related with Taiwan. So that's the, the first thing. Second thing is that the, the Taiwan contingency is not going to be original uh, because you look at the, uh, the world trade, the container trade, 50% of them uh, over Taiwan, and if you are looking at the gigantic uh, container, 90% of them pass through the Taiwan proper. And the uh, Taiwan chips, 60% uh, of the, the, the chips uh, that whether that is the, uh, the, the mature process or the, the advanced process provided by Taiwan. So the things on Taiwan definitely will affect the whole world. And uh, within seven or ten days, all the European countries will be affected. So the issue is that uh, if you, you want to avoid yourself from getting into that issues, uh, the, the earlier management and earlier decision that need to be made, especially right now. And uh, right now, we do not see any NATO that actually have a decision or the, the discussion regarding Taiwan. 
So that is the another the issue that we wanted to to know. Now the third thing about the uh, the NATO's itself, uh, we do see especially next year that uh, there are several member the NATO member states from Canada, from the United Kingdom, from Germany, even the, even the Netherlands. They are going to have the military presence, and then in addition to the France, already they have their military presence in the Indo-Pacific. So that it is necessary for the NATO to increase uh, their coordination, uh, even have a center for the activities in, in this area. And right now, that uh, without the liaison office in Japan, NATO basically is going through the Denmark uh, embassy in Japan mm-hmm. to coordinate all the affairs. And I do not think that's going to uh, sustain itself. So that this is the, uh, the, the office itself in Japan is both a necessity, but also that will uh, beg people to ask the questions. Should the contingency on Taiwan happen, will NATO through its member states, uh, its military presence, or actually through Japan. So those are two different uh, pathways about the, the issue, how they were going to respond. So those questions. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Dr. Lai. Um, maybe we're really almost out of time, but if you'd like to make some final statement responding to some of those things, India, uh, NATO offices, and so on, please uh, just say something brief, Professor Fukuda. Okay, so I will uh, briefly answer um, uh, the question about the Japanese position towards Indo, um, India. Um, uh, in recent years, uh, Japanese government uh, tried to um, uh, to to work with uh, India, um, but uh, <laughs> the. Uh, but the uh, India's uh, position itself is very, um, <laughs> mm. very um, not not so stable and the uh, ambiguous. So um, I always uh, uh, it is it is my personal view, but I always doubt uh, if uh, the uh, such a Japanese. Um, Effort to uh, pull uh, India into the uh, Quad Corporation and the work with um, uh, working for the uh, our uh, rule-based uh, international order um, um, is uh, <laughs> is success uh, or not? I I. I, I'm doubting about that. Uh, it is my um, own view. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. okay. let me start with the, the Macron's the, uh, comment on the yes. Japan mm-hmm. office, uh, uh, NATO office in Japan. And uh, the, the Financial Times, June the 5th, have the coverage. And uh, so I was asked to make a comment later. But uh, so he said that if we push NATO to enlarge the spectrum and the geography further, we will make a big mistake. This is very French kind of tradition to focus more on European theater and uh, less on Afghanistan, less on the Iraq. So that means Europe-centric and European strategic focus of autonomy. And uh, I fully applaud. Uh, the uh, uh, appreciate this position b- because this is a very important 
positions. And then, uh, whether or not the Macron will veto or not, well, that's a very different problem. Because what we have now is a, in mind is NATO liaison office. So we have the dozens of liaison offices. Uh, NATO has one. Plus, the, what we have with the information sharing and uh, and also talking about the Taiwan or the Ukraine the situations. What is important in my mind is expectation management. Expect, expect not too much, but not too small. Be pragmatic. Know the reality. And ask Australians or Indian or to work together and Singaporean to work together. And uh, cooperative security is very important uh, or should be back on track. And also you mentioned a very important one, strategic communication. That means if you are supportive of our office, why not join us? If you are not supporting us, tell, tell us what is wrong with us. Yeah. So in that sense, I will stop here, but the strategic communication is key. Thank you very much. Do you have a last word, Dimitar? Two very quick points on European public opinion and uh, NATO and uh, Taiwan, Taiwan policy. Uh, the, the comment was, was spot on. Of course, the ECFR study, uh, there's nuances in terms of phrasing of questions. Also, the, the study which was mentioned was conducted, if I believe, uh, within 11 member states. So it wasn't a comprehensive snapshot of the European Union. But indeed, let's be honest. People in, in Europe, are they neutral or have no understanding of the dynamic because they simply do not know Taiwan? Mm -hmm. I had the privilege to spend some time in the Republic of China earlier this year in, in, in Taipei and Tainan. And, I mean, you see it. Europe is not present in, in, in Taiwan. When we look at culture, when we look at businesses, the American 7-Elevens are critical yeah. infrastructure, more or less, <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in the country. But even the tourists and, and the language barrier yeah. and all of these things, which is also a part of our homework to engage more with, uh, with the Republic of China when it comes to partnerships, tourism, and also for our citizens to understand the role of, of, of Taiwan uh, in, in the region. And secondly, very quickly on, on NATO and, and Taiwan and the, the policy, well, the strategic concept doesn't even mention Taiwan, even if you go through it. It mentions China numerous times. So I think NATO is very reticent to talk about Taiwan publicly. Uh, and when it comes to the overall direction of, of, its, uh, of, of the alliance, it will reflect simply the, 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 the position of its member states, which share that the, the one China principle and that the, the question the, 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 in the Taiwanese trade should be resolved peacefully. And I'll stop it then. Thank you very much. And yeah, last uh, word in the conference to you. Okay, I'll do it quickly. <laughs> um, you know, um, what I'll say is, you know, um, Macron's comment is talking about NATO should not continue to do expansion. Maybe we shouldn't frame it like that. We should say NATO should do enlargement, but in terms of the scope of its study, right? Because we are only talking about uh, enlarging, you know, the area of the interest and to study the potential impact. And I think this is very important. And this also reminds me about this morning there was a comment talking about uh, back then European country were so afraid to, uh, to annoy or to agitate Russia and, uh, you know, stop uh, the NATO membership application from Ukraine and whatsoever. But somehow the war still occurred. So maybe it's a time to rethink creatively. Should we still you know, act passively? Or is there any way we can act actively and without provoking? 
So I'll end there. Thank you so Back much. You. And yeah. thank you, all four of you, for a fascinating discussion. And obviously, uh, there are a lot more questions to be resolved. So I hope we can continue the dialogue. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.